KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. The COVID-19 outbreak closes the SDSU campus. There have been lots of reports from students and people around the college area of some parties and large gatherings, people just in general not wearing face coverings, not following the rules. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Choosing volunteers for a major coronavirus vaccine trial beginning in San Diego. We're prioritizing communities that have been hardest hit by COVID, which in San Diego are primarily communities of color in the South Bay and East counties. The case for replacing SDG&E with a publicly owned utility and a mother and son duo combine music and art as part of our summer music series. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Just nine days after bringing nearly 8,000 students back to campus, San Diego State University officials pulled the plug yesterday. The move came as 64 COVID-19 cases were reported and 100 other students went into quarantine. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman has been covering the campus reopening and joins me now. Hi, Matt. Hey, Mark. So do we know how the students, the 64 students we're talking about at SDSU, contracted the virus? So not exactly. I mean, so we know there's 64 confirmed or probable cases since the semester began. That was last Monday. We know some are related and some aren't. And we know that there's at least one outbreak that's been identified by county health officials. So that's three or more cases. Um, and that's in an off-campus apartment building. Now, it's unclear exactly how many cases they found there. Um, but we know that county health officials are investigating links between other cases and we could see more outbreaks named. So while we don't know exactly like how these cases have been spreading, there have been lots of reports from students and people around the college area of some parties and large gatherings, people just in general not wearing face coverings, not following the rules, uh, mingling with, with other cohorts. Um, and we know that county public health doctor Eric McDonald uh, pointing to off-campus socializing, sort of warning uh, students about this dramatic increase in cases was just 20 the other day, now is 64, is a sign of how quickly this virus can spread. You should not be scheduling or attending uh, social gatherings that are not essential. And the essential job of a student is to participate fully in education. And most of that is online. Last week on Midday, we spoke with Union Tribune reporter Gary Robbins about uh, him seeing many students without masks and mingling on and around campus over the last few weekends. How is the university warning students in enforcing the wearing of masks and social distancing? 
So, I mean, just in general, they've been sending out a lot of info to students, whether it's uh, via email, via social media, you know, about the, the requirements as they've been changing from the state, from the county. Uh, also, if you go on campus, um, for those that have those limited number of classes on campus, um, and keep in mind, we're only talking about like 200 or so in-person classes. The university was mainly online, and those in-person classes are like chemistry 100, which is typically uh, sort of a, a freshman class there. Um, but lo lots of signage on campus, um, and we know that just recently SDSU now uh, contracting with private security guards. So some of these elite security guards wearing the red tops, you typically see like at an SDSU sporting event, a basketball game. They're now walking around campus uh, reminding students, hey, you know, make sure you have a mask, make sure you're social distancing. And uh, they can report like violators to the school and they can do everything from, you know, suspending somebody to in extreme cases, uh, expelling them. Uh, they said that I think in a three day time frame before this like uh, 64 cases were announced, they issued 40 citations to both students and on-campus organizations. And so there's investigations underway following those sort of like administrative violations. And how is the university responding to this big jump in cases? So I think we're seeing this response right now. I mean, they're putting the pause button, right? Uh, they're going for a four-week pause. Um, and that applies also to things like athletics. Um, but athletics, you know, they're they're not doing a four-week pause. They're going to do uh, a, just a two-week pause that actually goes into effect starting today. And, you know, also part of this too, things like the library are, are closing, that which has been open, which I know talking to students earlier this week is, is sort of a bummer for them. I mean, they like to go to the library, you know, even if they have to go there, they say to be temperature checked and wear their masks, they'd rather go there as a quiet place to study. So the library is closing down. Um, also something to keep in mind, Mark, too, SDSU officials and county health officials saying, as of yet, no hospitalizations have been found among students, uh, but majority of them have had symptoms. And when you talk about athletics, we're talking about practices, right? Because they're uh, pushing the football season back uh, at least till spring, right? Yeah, so we're, we, we are talking about practices. And so they have to put everything on hold for two weeks, um, and then they're going to reevaluate. And sort of, you know, it's sort of like, where do we go after this sort of four-week period? Now, SDSU says that they're going to be looking at sort of a number of factors, including uh, the number of cases that happen, you know, in, in the next few weeks, also looking at the positivity rate and the availability of testing, which SDSU says um, that they're in the process of beefing up with the county. Um, there's at least one testing site in a parking lot, and it's all free. Um, and the health officials say, look, you know, that this is going to go in the triple digits. It's at 64 right now, but um, they're just starting to, to trace or starting to test, excuse me, the close contacts of those uh, 64 cases that have uh, tested positive. So we're likely to see more cases. And you spoke to a few SDSU students about this. What did they have to say? Yeah, Mark, I did speak to some students earlier in the week, and that was when they had 20 cases that have been reported since campus had started. And a lot of students were saying, you know, what did school officials expect? You know, like it, it's college kids. A lot of them aren't following the rules. Now they're saying there are people that are definitely following the rules, but uh, people sort of pointing to SDSU's party reputation is sort of carrying through the pandemic, they say, um, just walking around, talking to people. There's lots of parties going on, still gatherings going on. And um, they say that's sort of college. It's sort of expected. So finally, what's the university plan going forward? When uh, might they give the green light for some students to come back to campus again? Right. So as of right now, this is just a four week pause. Now, this is different from like what Chico State did um, uh, last week when they said, hey, look, we're going to we're going to um, put the whole kibosh on our uh, minimal um, in-person classes. Um, now we have SDSU saying we're going to do a four week pause. So they're not 
you know, they're not going out of the in-person class game yet, so to speak. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, like we said, when they look at these, you know, whether it's they're looking at things like number of cases, the positivity rate and the availability of testing in the coming weeks, um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether the numbers really go way up or if they um, go up a little bit and start to stabilize. So a lot of unknowns here. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mark. The Centers for Disease Control is notifying states that new vaccines for COVID-19 could be rolled out as soon as next month, raising questions about the speed with which vaccine trials have been conducted. Meanwhile, UCSD is recruiting almost 3,000 candidates in San Diego and Imperial counties for a new vaccine trial. Here to explain what's involved in the trial is Dr. Susan Little, who is leading the AstraZeneca trial at UCSD. Dr. Little, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So tell us more about this vaccine trial and what it would involve. Well, the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, rolled out nationally last week, starting uh, August 28th, and we hope to begin recruitment here in San Diego next week uh, and in Imperial Valley uh, probably a week or two later. Uh, We'll be recruiting, uh, I hope, just over 1,000 or 1,500 individuals in both sites Uh, We are looking for adults 18 or older in generally good health, but underlying conditions are fine, meaning people with pre-existing diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, et cetera, are fine, as long as they haven't been hospitalized in the last three months. And in particular, we're also looking for older adults age 65 and older. How does this vaccine work and does it differ from others being developed? Almost all of the vaccines that are in development are using a a similar uh, approach. That is, they are using the spike uh, protein of the COVID virus to elicit uh, um, a response. Um, So they take a a vector, um, that is the vaccine construct, and they embed within it uh, a piece of the uh, SARS virus. um, uh, And that just the small piece, that um, spike protein, is hoped will um, allow the person who's been vaccinated to elicit uh, an antibody response, a protective antibody response. So this vaccine is very similar to the others. It just uses a different vaccine platform with the same spike protein embedded within it. Are you prioritizing your outreach efforts to certain communities? We are. We're prioritizing communities that have been hardest hit by COVID, which in San Diego are primarily communities of color in the South Bay and East counties. And those communities, I think, have the greatest opportunity to benefit um, from an effective vaccine. Um, And for that reason, we are prioritizing those communities. Also, communities of so-called essential workers people who are at greater risk of acquiring COVID by virtue of their work, people who are uh, exposed to COVID because they're out in the workforce. And you're planning to recruit people by going to certain communities in a bus, I understand. I think that's one of the most unique features of this study is that we've um, developed an entirely mobile vaccine clinic. So we will be taking a mobile vaccine, a mobile vehicle to certain communities. And we're going to focus on Chula Vista, Imperial Beach, and uh, La Mesa, And we will be taking our um, mobile vehicle to those locations and uh, parking. And we will not allow walk-ups, but we will schedule people who have contacted us through our website and our phone number. Um, And we will be um, doing the vaccinations on the bus um, and um, then coming back for follow-up visits. Uh, And we will have separate mobile vehicles for people who have acquired or believe they may have acquired COVID in the course of the study follow-up. So we won't be mixing people who may be infected with people who are not. 
Now, bearing in mind that the CDC is now talking about rolling out approved vaccines next month, you know, given that phase three trials have only just begun, how realistic is it to expect a vaccine by next month? I, I think it's unlikely. I do think we're all hopeful that a vaccine study that, for instance, the Moderna study, which started um, similar to the AstraZeneca, is enrolling 30,000 people over eight weeks. That study started in late July. Um, the hope is that for all of these studies, there are going to be multiple, um, that if they can recruit their target population, 30,000 people over eight weeks, that maybe four, six, eight months later, um, that there will be enough endpoints, that is enough cases of COVID that have occurred in the study population that they may be able to make a determination of efficacy. But four months strikes me as uh, optimistic um, and more likely six months. Um, so I, I think November is perhaps more politically motivated than scientifically motivated. Your vaccine trial is scheduled to go on for two years. So if another vaccine comes out sooner, would the trial still continue? Yes. Um, there are going to be multiple studies that are released one right after the other. Um, and the goal being, uh, ideally, we would have multiple vaccine studies, multiple vaccines that work. Multiple vaccine studies will be ongoing simultaneously, all probably two years of follow-up. The two years of follow-up is for safety. Um, and even if we find that a study is effective four or five months into the vaccine study because we have enough study endpoints, the study will continue for safety reasons. Um, it is, I hope, um, uh, planned that all people who are, once they find that the study is effective, people who receive placebo will be given the opportunity to roll over, as we say, to the, to the intervention to the vaccine arm. Um, but the study will continue for safety reasons. Um, but the goal is that we will have multiple vaccines that are found to be effective because realistically, if out of all of these studies, we find one vaccine that works, it will be a major challenge to vaccinate not just the U.S., but the entire world with only one effective vaccine. And have you at UCSD begun preparing for a strategy to roll out vaccines the state or the county in communication with healthcare providers in San Diego about this? There is a national effort already to try and discuss equitable access and distribution of vaccine. So um, certainly medical providers that are involved in the vaccine, leadership um, within the vaccine studies and uh, national leaders are working right now to develop um, policy so that when an effective vaccine does become available, there is um, policy in place across the United States that we hope will help ensure equitable access and distribution of the vaccines. So, Dr. Little, how can people sign up for your trial? Where can, where can people get more information? Our vaccine website is covidvaccinesd, covidvaccinesd.com. Um, and they, once they go to that website, it is in English and Spanish, um, they complete a short survey um, that uh, prioritizes, helps us to prioritize our, the speed with which we respond to individuals. Um, and there's also a phone number, 619-742-0433, um, if people don't want to use the website. Um, and this um, website will be for um, all future studies that, that I lead in San Diego. So there will be others that are coming shortly after this AstraZeneca study. Dr. Little, thanks so much for your time. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. We've been speaking with Dr. Susan Little, who's leading the AstraZeneca trial at UCSD. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. For about a century, San Diegans have been buying their electricity from San Diego Gas and Electric. But the city's agreement with the company is about to expire. Mayor Kevin Faulkner says he plans to put a new agreement up for bid to private utilities. But KPBS science and technology reporter Shalina Chatlani says community activists have another vision for the city's energy future, public power. It was a scorching hot August afternoon. Over a dozen activists, equipped with signs, charts, and graphs of California electricity rates, line the stairs of the tall brown skyscraper at 101 Ash Street, downtown. The building was once occupied by San Diego Gas and Electric's parent company, Sempra Energy. Activists gathered here to announce a new coalition. San Diego Public Power. Activists brought their demonstration to this building because they say it's symbolic of wasted money, just like the high rates San Diegans pay for electricity. We're paying $18,000 a day to pay for this uninhabitable building. The current franchise, the SDG&E, is delivering a million dollars a day in profits, 50 times larger. That's former energy journalist Craig Rose. Rose explains San Diego Gas and Electric customers pay the highest rates in the state, while cities that have their own public utilities, like Sacramento, have among the lowest rates in the state. Another coalition member, engineer Bill Powers, says there's an even more important reason. A public utility could help the city better reach its ambitious climate change goals. And we can finally start crafting our own destiny, which is solar power for all, battery power for all, and we can do it as one big family. Another activist, Sonia Robinson of the NAACP, points out there are also issues of inequity, saying low-income people can't afford SDG&E's high rates. We are asking for a more just, relatable, cost-effective rate for utilities for San Diegans. Then there's another reason these activists want public power now. Timing. Even though the city faces a deep budget deficit because of the coronavirus pandemic, interest rates are at historic lows. And now, some say, is a good time for a big infrastructure investment.
but city leaders aren't on board. The mayor and key members of city council say breaking away from a contract with a private utility like with SDG&E at this time would be too hard and cost too much money. Meanwhile, activists pledge to continue their fight for public power now. Of course, the backing of city leaders is key, but we'll get to that later. The first question for most San Diegans who've only ever paid SDG&E bills is how exactly would public power known as municipalization, work? And how hard would it be to make it happen? Let's go back 100 years or so with energy consultant Robert McCullough. At the turn of the last century, we had a number of technological geniuses who revolutionized the world. And they brought electricity to the markets in North America. Those entrepreneurs became utility moguls, turning the invention of electric power generation into investor-owned, profit-making businesses. By the 1920s, less than a dozen investor-owned utilities sold the majority of electricity in the nation and secured decades of profits by convincing cities to sign franchise agreements with some local regulation. Well, that worked well into the Great Depression, but in the Great Depression, people couldn't buy electricity, so there was a wave of bankruptcies. The stock market crashed and those massive conglomerates collapsed, ruining investor livelihoods and leaving the energy grid in complete disarray. People began demanding a shift away from the corporations. A desire for public power passed through the country. The city governments took control. An example on the West Coast, Vancouver, British Columbia, Seattle is public power. L.A., the largest. Today, thousands of other U.S. cities have public power. Around 45 provide power in California. Other major cities, like San Diego and San Francisco, still operate with those relic franchise agreements with investor-owned utilities from the turn of the last century. But McCullough believes the investor-owned utility model won't last, as more people opt for technology like solar panels and cities form community energy programs. People are much more efficient in electricity. We now conserve faster than we grow. So it means that sustaining the cash flow from these investor-owned utilities is a real challenge. These days, many cities are reconsidering their franchise agreements, including places like Boulder, Colorado, and Chicago. And even San Francisco has considered the idea of buying out Pacific Gas and Electric's local grid for around $2.5 billion. It sort of boils down to we can control our own reliability. Barry Moline is executive director of the California Municipal Utilities Association. He says reliability and meeting aggressive environmental goals are two of the main reasons cities opt for public power. And public utilities are just like private ones. They keep the lights on, but they're run through local utility boards, which work closely with the community. We have a different motive. They're focused on profits. Our focus is on controlling costs and meeting all of our goals for reliability, affordability, and sustainability. He brings up the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, or SMUD, as one example. The utility formed in the 40s and offers residents among the lowest rates in the state, with nearly half of its energy mix coming from renewable sources. I lived in other public power communities, and they've been pretty good, but this one is just on steroids when it comes to engaging with the community. But some utility experts say public power isn't a panacea for all of our energy woes. 
For example, when much of California experienced planned rolling blackouts during a heat wave, SMUD also had power outages. They weren't because of a lack of power, however. They were likely caused by overheated transmission lines. Also, public utilities can make poor decisions and waste money, just like private ones. In the 1960s, SMUD purchased a nuclear power plant. Ratepayers voted in 1989 to decommission it, but it still costs the utility and ratepayers millions. Municipalization just changes who is in charge. What we want is good, responsive, attentive management. Energy lawyer Michael Wera says Sacramento is still a good example where public power works. But that's because the management is also good. And getting public power in the first place isn't exactly a piece of cake. The city has to buy the private utilities, poles, and wires, which can cost billions of dollars. You can't just take them for free. You have to pay the owners of those assets. And there are, it is wildly complicated to arrive at a number, and it creates an opportunity to fight. In fact, it took Sacramento two decades of court fights with Pacific Gas and Electric for the right to buy the infrastructure. Other cities now are also finding themselves in years of litigation, like those in the South San Joaquin Irrigation District. It has, it, it, there's, you know, if we have to shut down a line for... At a June 2019 meeting, the discord between the city of Manteca and the Irrigation District and PG&E is palpable. Here's a PG&E representative explaining why they have to shut off wide swaths of power during the fire season. You know, having to turn off the lights is, is not something that we enjoy, and it's not a decision that we take lightly. And Mayor Benjamin Cantu responding. Well, let me be a little crude. The people in this town are pissed. <laughs> and I put a notice out several weeks ago, and I got 68,000 hits from people that did not know what to do. But how do you address a person who has a freezer full of food and is going to spoil in a couple of days? Manteca and other cities in the district have been trying to separate from PG&E since the early 2000s, says Peter Rekirk, general manager of the Irrigation District. They weren't seeing the level of investment and care in the facilities uh, that they were hoping to receive from PG&E at the time. It took nearly a decade before the district's application to take over the utility was finally approved. And then, when they sued to condemn PG&E's infrastructure and try to take it over, right away, PG&E sued the district back. PG&E actually had, a, uh, had funded a local group called Stop the Power Grab that dried up uh, fairly quickly because they saw that the local community was behind us. Between 2008 and 2018, the district spent $27 million on the project. $18 million of that went to legal costs. Today, the region is still caught in litigation limbo. Would you go through that process again? Um, the answer is yes. And it's primarily because of the value that we think we can bring to our local constituents. But even with widespread community support, municipalization is often an uphill battle. Take Boulder, Colorado. In 2010, the city council voted not to extend the city's franchise agreement with its investor-owned utility, XL Energy. We had just passed a, our climate action plan and our carbon tax. Jonathan Cohen is the chief sustainability officer with the city of Boulder. 
our electricity supply um, was the, the big issue that we needed to wrestle with in terms of meeting our emission reduction requirements. The city wanted more control over its energy mix, and on several occasions the public voted in favor of a public utility that would prioritize clean energy sources. But 10 years later, in 2020, they're still fighting. Now the city's back to considering another 20-year franchise agreement with Excel. But Cohen says the fight for public power was worth it because the utility has made commitments to meet climate change targets. If they're not hitting them, we can, by a vote of the people or a supermajority of council vote, exit our franchise and be done and go right back to municipalization. Back in San Diego, as the protest at 101 Ash Street showed, there's some community activists who are still motivated to go into battle for public power. But there are also forces of resistance, namely among the bulk of current city leadership. For me, uh, it's, an, it's a no right now. Councilmember Barbara Bree has consistently said public power isn't on the table right now. Why? First of all, it is not free to take over those transmission lines. We have to issue billions of dollars worth of bonds and pay that money back. Second, I uh, have no confidence in the city to operate anything. San Diego hired consultants to look into the feasibility of public power. In their reports, consultants estimate the costs for taking over SDG&E's electricity and gas infrastructure as ranging from around $2 billion to just under $5 billion. In all low to medium cost scenarios, the reports say the city would save money with a public power option. The report also says these scenarios are most likely to happen if the city attempts a takeover. But the report also says in the highest cost scenario, public power wouldn't be worth it. While the high cost scenario is least likely, that's the advice Mayor Kevin Faulkner took. His office is moving ahead with an auction to take bids from private utilities to take over the franchise. As for SDG&E, the utility did not have a comment for this story. But in an email statement about the franchise negotiations, a company spokeswoman said, the company has been a good partner with the city and plans to submit a competitive bid. But on the sidewalk outside the 101 Ash Street skyscraper, Cody Pedersen of the San Diego Democrats for Environmental Action said, activists aren't giving up. He says the city consultants overestimated the costs of taking over the grid and that it's not difficult to find good managers for a city-owned utility. So we do need a city that actually starts to work for its citizens more broadly, but this can be done and we're already working on a path to do that. That path is trying to work with council members to stop any vote at city council when the mayor presents a franchise agreement. And if that isn't successful, activists say they'll continue to build community and political support for a city-owned utility. Our target is to create have municipal power in three to seven years. The path there is going to be bumpy one way or another. As bumpy as losing a million dollars a day? No, I don't think it is. Pedersen says as franchise negotiations move on and the option of public or private power comes up for debate, it's important that San Diegans never lose sight of their rights to have reliable, clean, and affordable electricity. Shalina Chatlani, KPBS News. An iNews source investigation has found deaths at home are up across San Diego County since the pandemic began. Some of those deaths involve COVID-19 victims who received little or no medical help. 
iNews Source investigative reporter Mary Plummer has this story on a family in San Marcos. When Hector Navarro Lopez got sick, he and his wife tried to get medical help, but they were turned away. When they arrived at North County Health Services in San Marcos, the husband had a mild cough and a normal temperature. Clinic staff were screening patients at the entrance. His wife, Noemi Arroyo Ramirez, says the staff quickly retreated inside once they learned he had a fever of 101 the night before. They say, oh, you have fever before? Well, I have 101 last night. Oh, no. I, we can't see you. We can't. Her husband would have a phone call with the doctor instead. During the call, the doctor told him to stay home and get back in touch once he had COVID-19 test results. This was the only medical care he would receive before the day he died of the coronavirus, a week and a half later. County medical examiner records reviewed by iNews source show that some people died of COVID-19 with no medical help at all. He never told me he, he was in pain. When Navarro Lopez's test came back positive, his wife called the clinic to report the results. She left a message but says she never got a call back. At their home in San Marcos, she cared for her husband, relying on things she'd seen on television, Google search results, and her own intuition. She gave him Tylenol and moved her children into a hotel so they wouldn't get sick. She checked his temperature every hour. I ask every single time, do you feel okay? Are you okay? You don't have fever. You don't have, um, I mean, pain or respiratory problems. And he said no. Her husband woke early one morning, saying there was a problem with his legs. He looked okay, but his wife called 911. When the ambulance arrived, he didn't want to go to a hospital. He he sit down in the in the bed and he say, um, I'm okay now, Flaca. Uh, I'm fine. I feel better. And I was so worried because I don't know what happened with him. I want at least um, the doctor check him and see what happens inside to take a, I don't know, x-rays or something to see what's, what's going on. She says he walked normally to the stretcher, but shortly after he left, things took a turn. He had two heart attacks and died on the way to the hospital. When his wife remembers that day, her mind turns to how helpless she felt, how alone. Nobody happened, nobody called us, nobody said anything about how I can take care of him. The clinic where the family tried to get help declined to comment on Navarro Lopez's care. County public health officials say they attempt to reach every positive COVID case for contact tracing, and that people tested at public clinics, like Navarro Lopez was, are contacted by public nurses with care instructions. Inside their apartment, memories are everywhere. Pieces of wood that Navarro Lopez had picked out to make the family a new TV stand, photos and athletic trophies. The couple's three youngest children walk outside to their dad's bedroom window, the place they last saw him. So for us to not even be able to hug him or like, you know, feel him, and to just kind of like see him through a window, like, it was definitely something that uh, had a big impact. That's Hector, the couple's 22-year-old son. He says when he learned his dad had died, his legs went numb and he felt like he might collapse. But he knows his father would want his children to go after their dreams and work hard in his memory. He wouldn't want us to be sad or crying over his loss because that's just how he was. He, everything he would do, he did for us. Navarro Lopez was just 52 years old and had no underlying health conditions. For KPBS, I'm iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer.
The story was co-reported by iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano. iNewsource is an independently funded non-profit partner of KPBS. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Alison St. John with Mark Sauer, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. In these tumultuous times of racial inequality, a global pandemic, and growing economic hardships, the arts help us make sense of our feelings and keep us sane with entertainment that allows us to escape the bleak realities. As part of our summer music series, songwriter Alfred Howard and painter Marion Howard, who happens to be his mother, join us to talk about their new multimedia project, Alfred Howard Writes. Al plans to write 100 songs, each song accompanied by an original painting by Marion. You can see the paintings and hear the music at kpbs.org slash summer music series. Here's their first song from the project, quote, We All Breathe the Same Air by Al Howard, performed by Nathan Moore. An ocean of tears can't undo the embers of a moment in amber. We all will remember when the wind blew in a tempest of tempers and the truth was exposed to the light. We all breathe the same air and I feel ashamed here only love can pull us through the dark and if it's one it's everyone Someone's daughter, someone's son, etch their name into my breaking heart. That was Al Howard's song, We All Breathe the Same Air, performed by Nathan Moore. It's part of Al and his mother Marion's new multimedia project, Alfred Howard Writes. Marion and Al Howard, welcome to Midday Edition. Hey, thank you for having us. Now, the song that we just heard, We All Breathe the Same Air, is the first song released for this project. i got to say, I love some of the lines, like 2020 vision is a blinding affliction. (laughs) And I want to read part of the chorus again. We all breathe the same air. Only love can pull us through the dark. And if it's one, it's everyone, someone's daughter and someone's son. So, Al, first of all, what does this song mean to you? So this song was a, a direct response to the lynching of George Floyd and seeing that happen live in the streets in America. And um, one of the important things about this project to me is like, I've been in bands for years, 
and you'll write a song and sometimes it'll take two years to get the album out. But this platform and creating music this way allows you to be very reactionary. So something like that can happen. And, you know, we were just in shock and awe and also just numb to it too at the same time, because there's been so much of this kind of violence on, on blacks in America. Marion, can you describe your painting for this song, We All Breathe the Same Air? It's, it's, it's a kind of wash of color, watercolors you work in, right? Yes, I do. Um, that was a hard one for me because as a mother to a son who is a young black man living here in America, it was very heartfelt, um, if you can understand what I'm saying. Um, mm. I just, it was, it was heavy for me, very, very heavy. It was very emotional. I, I cried a lot when I heard it, when I heard the, the, the words, because it just, it just, it just came to my heart, you know, um, mm. because all I could imagine is my own son doing the right thing and this, him being taken from me just like that, you know. So, Al, if you're writing two songs a week, that means that you can respond to what's going on in the news quite in real time. You know, being able to react to it instantaneously, create a song, have it out as a response one week later is, is a different kind of creativity than I'm used to. But I, I feel like for me, it's the way forward. You know, art, art is always reactionary at its best, you know, and there's there's a lot to be inspired from right now, whether it's like adversely inspired or positively inspired. You know, I always try to find hope in these uh, dark situations. So Al, you've been working uh, as a musician for decades and you're one of San Diego's most prolific musicians, but you were close to quitting music altogether before this project began. What inspired this project? Well, I've been playing in uh, eight bands and writing lyrics for eight bands for a long time, but I've also been struggling with chronic Lyme disease for 24 years. And uh, I was getting to this point in my life where the shows and late nights and the toll that it took on my joints, it, it just wasn't pleasant anymore. And it, it started to feel like work. And then during the downtime of pandemic, I sort of got a, a passion for writing again. And I was trying to figure out a way to involve myself in music without the gigs, but, you know, work with some new people. And then I, I kind of came up with this idea. Let's listen to another song from your project now then. This one is called Peace. Veterans of civil war We fought our lives Until love was no more The enemy is at the gate That was Peace, performed by Shelby Bennett vocals, Ian Owen guitar, Daniel Schreer keyboard with lyrics by Alfred Howard. Well, the two of you are obviously very tuned in anyway, but what would you say working together like this has done for your relationship? I lived on the East Coast. My son came to the West Coast after he graduated from college. So this gives me a chance to really know the person as a young adult, not a child. Also to involve myself with him creatively has been really interesting because a lot of times 
Alfred and I will sit or we'll talk about something, have a discussion, and we'll say the same thing at the same time, or we'll be thinking about the same thing at the same time, and it just boggles my mind. Just not working with Alfred, but as a mother, and a very, very proud mother, I am so glad that my son is back to writing, because as a creative person, I can't imagine never doing my art. It's just unimaginable. And for me to see Alfred not picking up a pen and putting it to paper to write, it broke my heart. So with this epidemic that we have going on and that him being closed in for months and me being closed in, I was always gonna be able to paint. But when he picked up his pen and started writing and working with this project and shared it with me, I was blown away and I was like, yes, you really want me to be part of this? Of course I will. You know, no pay, no pay. I'm the only <laughs> one you don't have to pay. I'm a freebie, you know? So um, this has been very challenging, but very rewarding for me as a mother to see my son create again and such a nice and a big way. And also a very giving kind of way because Alfred is not selfish and he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about all the musicians that can't work right now. And how can I enhance their life? How can I help them? And so, yes, I'm, I'm just in awe of what, what I'm able to do with my son right now. So Al, anything to add? Yeah, you know, um, especially during the pandemic, like my mom and I, we, we would get together a few times a week. Sometimes we'd watch a movie or, you know, we'd go for walks and, you know, we've both been very careful during the, the pandemic and we don't get to to share in the same things that we did but there's different ways to communicate and getting to communicate via this project I think has been important for both of us you know so we're still sharing something that's really significant and that's that's been a, a great and important and needed thing for me and in my life and and I hope so for her too well Marion and Al Howard thank you so much for joining us on Midday Edition Thank, thank you, you so for much having for us. us. To hear the full interview, see a video, and learn more about Al and Marianne Howard's project, go to kbbs.org slash summer music series. We're going out on a song sung by Jen Grinnells, the lyrics by Al Howard. It's called Always on the Run. Cobblestones and empty streets Virginia is a memory Trade the vines draped over trees for cactuses and tumbleweeds. They say I have a western heart. Wait until the day turns dark. To trace the patterns in the sky till it rides an alibi. Mercury is on the rise It's really
Coming up on KPBS Evening Edition at 5 or 6.30 on KPBS Television, San Diego Unified is urging Congress to pass the HEROES Act, which would release more funding for schools. And join us again tomorrow for KPBS Midday Edition here on the radio. If you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on our website, as well as our Midday Edition newsletter that comes directly to your email. I'm Alison St. John, along with Mark Sauer. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.